Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, transform us, and enlighten us, renew us to be like you. Enable us to take a message that is transformational to this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And then I received this email this week. It says, I am writing to request a case each, if possible, the free DVDs, God, and your brain, healing the mind, and modern medicine. I would also like any other recommended materials to saturate our library with. They have been a wonderful blessing to me and my family and circle of friends. I had recently put out a case of your God and your brain DVDs at our church, and they are gone. We have 300 to 400 uh, regular attendees. I hope uh, to bless them with your free materials that truly are sharing the gospel message. Just a note, when I read your God-shaped brain book, I was so impressed uh, that this was the best simplistic, logical, and well-laid-out version of the good news that I'd ever heard. I had our late administrative pastor, who was diagnosed with cancer and Parkinson's, read over just the part about Job and suffering and miracles. This 86-year-old man who loved the church more than anything wept. It was such a blessing to, know, to, to me to know that he really got it before he passed. Thank you. My husband uh, bought a case, and we have been uh, handing them out ever since. I won't bore you with all the stories, but they are more and more frequent. Praise God. Thank you again for your part in his ministry, and may God continue to bless and grow it for his kingdom. This was from Florida. And we are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, Christ and His Law. The title this week is Christ's Church and the Law. And the memory text is one you most of you have probably heard from Revelation 14:12, and it says, Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. When you hear that text, what does that mean? It's not enough to say, what does it say? You have to say, okay, what does it mean? The commandments of God. Depends on where you're looking from or viewing it. Ah, okay, nice one. That's right. So does, it have, does the commandments of God have anything to do with God's law? And then, of course, I'm going to say, what law? Any thoughts? Does this have bearing? Oh, yes, go ahead. The law of love. love. Well said. Yes, so this this has bearing. John John 13, Jesus speaking, says, a new command. Some versions, like King James said, a new commandment. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so that you, you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Is this text that I quote from Jesus, love one another, the new command I've given you, is this applicable to the Revelation text, here are the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God? Or is it something different? Applicable. It's applicable, okay, alrighty. Um, was, it, was it really a new command? Or was he just speaking in terms that they could understand? Was it really a new command? No, it was obviously in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy and many other places had this, yes. It was a new command in the sense that no one had seen how truly Christ loved. Right. It was, yes, new in their understanding of what it meant. Yeah, no, I agree. That's well said as well. But when you, do you think about, when you typically think of the Revelation 14 text, that people at the end of time who keep the commandments of God have the faith of Jesus, do you typically think they love best? That's what it looks like, to love others like Jesus did. That's what that means. Or do we typically think of some behavioral thing that we do in how we worship or when we worship or something like this? Well, this is uh, from an old journal article that I was perusing this week, uh, Review and Herald, April 25, 1893. And consider how our church might have looked at this in the past. And we're considering this revelation and um, 
this Revelation 14 text. It'll, it'll get there. It is through the mighty agency of the Holy Spirit that the government of Satan is to be subdued and subjected. It is the Holy Spirit that convinces of sin and expels it from the soul by the consent of the human agent. Now, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit convinces of sin and expels it from the soul by the consent of the human agent. Okay, so Zechariah 4, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. Hmm. The mind is then brought under a new law. And the law is the royal law of liberty. Which law would this be? Is it the Ten Commandments that's being referred to here? Or some, something more, broader, deeper, more profound, more eternal than the commandments themselves? How, well, maybe somebody could tell me, how is the law of God liberating? It shows us how to love. It puts the meaning of love in human terms, how we love God and how we love one another. And are you speaking of the commandments? Mm-hmm. Okay, so she says the commandments shows us how to love God and others, the first four and the last six. And how does that give us liberty? Any thoughts on how the law gives liberty? Sets us free from selfishness. Okay, sets us free from selfishness. Well, maybe I'll keep reading. Keep that in mind. Jesus came to break the shackles of sin slavery from the soul, for sin can triumph only when the liberty of the soul is extinguished. And the liberty of the soul, sin triumphs only when the liberty of your soul is extinguished. What does that mean? Liberty of, how does sin destroy the liberty of your soul? How does the law of God restore your liberty? Okay, which lens are you looking through? A set of rules, imposed law, or are you looking through design law? Kathy? Well, the law of sin eventually leads you to death. That is not liberating. The law of God facilitates life. A, that's very liberating to be able to exist. I want to expand on that. Yes, you had your hand up. Does it not help free us from the power of Satan? Okay, and what is the power of Satan? Lies. 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 And so? The truth. Okay, so, so God's law is? Truth. Ah, okay, truth. Why is God's law true? It was written by him. He makes no errors. Because he's got good penmanship? <laughs> no. But he knows the truth. He designed it. Oh, now, now I like where you're going with that. Where, expand that. He, it, he authored all of this, so he designed it to work in a certain way and his law is not so his law is true because it's the actual fabric upon which the cosmos exists mm-hmm. you see the you see the difference between a list of rules versus the construction protocols upon which reality operates how harmony yes if you come back to that statement where it says there's a consent involved it's a consensual process. Yes. If we have God's true character and his law before us, we can discern the lies. If we don't have that true character in front of us to help teach us and, and guide us and shape us, we could be overcome by the lies. Oh, nicely said. That's nicely said. Yes. How can we consent if we don't even have understanding. This is what Paul talks about, is blessed are those the feet of those who bring the gospel, because if the gospel isn't brought, how can they make the choice? Yeah. Wendell, you had a comment? 
The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God, presence in our lives is self-control. And without self-control, we don't have freedom. So it restores our true self-control. Good, 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 good. Way in the back, somebody online. You know, we have an online listener from London who says that God designed us to operate in His image and His love. Anything else is bondage and slavery. Oh, nicely said. And so we can give examples of this from, God, from, from the laws of health. Now, are we free to, to do anything we want, you know, basically health-wise with our bodies? You know, eat bad food, smoke if we want, take drugs. Uh, you know, you can go to certain parts of the world where it's legal to do it, okay? Humanly legal to do it. But can you ever make those things healthy for you? No. And if you smoke two packs a day till you get COPD, anybody ever work with COPD patients? I have. Have they lost liberty? Have they lost freedoms? What kind of freedoms have they lost? Can they go on a hike up a mountain with you? Can they even go up the stairs in their home if it's bad enough? Can they do the, the, the normal things around the house that they normally could do? No, why? Is it because, because deviation from the law enslaves you and restricts you, and the more you deviate, the more restricted you become. Now, what about something that maybe isn't physically direct, immediately physically consequence, like stealing from your employer? Do you have more freedom or less freedom if you steal from your employer? Less. I'm not the, even if you're not caught, not caught by the state, how, are you, how, are your, how is your liberty undermined by that? Your mind is in bondage to keep your tracks covered. Ah, the mind is in bondage. Uh, and, and so if you're at work one day and you've been stealing from your boss and your boss wants to rearrange the furniture in his office and he needs some help and he just leans out and calls your name, hey, Joe, will you come in here? <laughs> What happens if you've been stealing money? Your heart rate goes up. An entire inflammatory cascade. You're, you're, you're afraid. You begin to worry. You begin to perspire. You get nervous. Uh, he just wants you to move, help move his couch. <laughs> See, do, you, do you walk with the same peace and same freedom? No. So this is the law of liberty. It frees us from the enslavement of living outside the way God designed things to, to, to operate. So let's keep going. Jesus reached the very depths of human woe and misery, and his love attracts men to himself. Wait a minute. I always, I, I've been to a lot of revival meetings. And what, what brings people down for baptism is a threat of eternal damnation. If you go out of here today and you get hit by a car, this could be your last chance. If you haven't accepted Jesus, you could spend eternity in hell. Now, we don't want. Um, let, let's keep the music playing for one more minute. <laughs> How many have been there to hear this? Is, is that the love of Jesus attracting? This is threat. And, and, and so, I'm going to bring something up that was in the news recently. It was quite disgusting. Elliot Roger. Y'all know who Elliot Roger is? Student in California who made a video, seven minutes long, and then went and shot and killed six people, I think wounded eight or 11 more, and then shot and killed himself. How many watched the video? There's about two, three people in here. I watched it. If you want to see the clearest, in my view, the clearest articulation of Satan's attack against God and Satan's viewpoint ever, watch that seven-minute video. He goes on in the seven-minute video about how all he wanted was love. He just wanted girls to love him. 
He wanted them to have, he wanted affection. He wanted to be cared for, but they didn't love him. They loved these brutes, these animalistic guys. And, and, and this is a crime that can never be forgiven and it must be punished and he will annihilate them for it. This is what he goes on through this video for seven minutes, how he wants to be loved and they wouldn't love him. It's a crime and it must be punished and he will annihilate them. Do you understand that's what Christianity is teaching? The, the current view in most Christian churches is God is love and he wants your love. But if you will not respond to his love, he will use his power to kill you and or torture you in hell forever because it's a crime. It's a violation of his law and you've, you're a criminal and you must be punished. Because he's just. Yes, because it's the just thing to do. Do you understand this is a perversion of reality? It's not real. It's a lie. It's Satan's view that's infected Christian thought and prevents Christians from actually experiencing the peace that comes from living in harmony with the way he designed things. Yes, uh, Stanley. In Psalm 119, it talks a lot about the law and the precepts, and I will keep them and so forth and so on. At verse 44 and 45 says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, hearing, receiving, loving, and obeying it. And then in verse 45 it says, and I will walk at liberty That's right. ease. That's right. For I have sought and inquired and desperately required your precepts. That's right. See, when we understand them correctly, when we look through the Roman lens of a dictator making rules, it makes no sense how the law can give us freedom. It restricts us. And how many Seventh-day Adventists grew up under the Sabbath restrictions? It was not the day of liberty. How many grew up with the Sabbath being the day of greatest freedom? Okay, one person. Most people in Adventism have grown up with the Sabbath being the day of greatest restriction. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this other thing. You can't, the TV has to go off. You can't, you can wade. You can't swim. You can't, you can't go to the, you, you can't go to the store. You can't do, I mean, you can't, 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 can't. It's not a day of freedom. It's a day of restriction. And you sit and watch your clock. And you sit and watch the clock. And over at the dorms, you know, so waiting, waiting. You can't call on the girls until the sun goes down. And so you guys are sitting there waiting at the door, waiting for the sun to go down. And boom, out the door they go. Hit the phones, get the girls, okay? <laughs> That's not what Sabbath is. This is how the Jews viewed it. That's why they couldn't heal on Sabbath. You're working. You couldn't pick, pull heads of grain on Sabbath. You're working. And they wanted to stone Christ for all the good that he did. He said, Sabbath was made for man. It was for our blessing, for our good. Part of it, and we're not going to go into Sabbath now. But it is about liberty. It's about freedom. So Jesus reached the very depths. Oh, his love draws him. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, he lifts the mind up from its degradation and fastens it upon eternal realities. Through the merits of Christ, man may be able to exercise the noblest powers of his being and expel sin from his soul. It is essential that all who are fallen through sin shall put on the robe of Christ's righteousness, which has been prepared for us. Pause. That's metaphor. Tell me what it means. What is the robe of Christ? What does it mean to put on the robe of Christ's righteousness? You've all said it, yes, to become like him. If you'd like a reference from the same author, it's in a book called Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. It says, when our, thought, our thoughts come into you, when we surrender to Christ, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our desires are merged with his. Our will joins with his. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the robe of righteousness. 
It is not a covering. It's a regeneration, a healing, a transformation, a recreation within, or the metaphors of Scripture, if you like those better, write my law in your heart and mind, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, take out the heart of stone, put it in the heart of flesh, have the mind of Christ, be reborn, recreated. They're all the same Meaning, meaning we are regenerated to operate from love rather than selfishness and fear. That's what it means. Okay, keep going. The Holy Spirit was to convince. Now, this is a quote from what Jesus said. When Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, because uh, he's going to, when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin. And, and this is what else he said. He was to convince of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Question. By whom is the prince of this world judged? Who has judged this prince, this prince of this world? And what evidence has been most persuasive in this judgment? Who needed the evidence in order to come to this judgment? The universe. All the beings of the universe. Yeah. Did God need it? No. no. The one being who didn't need to make the, the judgment because he already knew, you see, was God. But we put him in the role of making the judgment. In reality, it was the angels in heaven who were confused by Satan's sophistry, and at the cross, all sympathy for him was cast out. They, he exposed himself as a murderer and a fraud, and no longer would any intelligent being outside planet Earth listen to him anymore, so he was cast out of the affections of the universe. And only on planet Earth now do beings still give him credence, and his views credence, and he is still judged. And he's supposed to be judged by us. And we should find his methods wanting and reject them. So the next sentence. The unfallen worlds have watched the conflict and trial of the Son of God in behalf of humanity. They have, been, they have seen the crooked work of him who was once exalted of God, but who was expelled from heaven with a large number of angels, who has made this world the stage of his action in the field of his controversy against God. In heaven, he complained against the law of God, declaring it unnecessary and arbitrary. What does that mean? What was Satan saying about God's law? Unnecessary. He misrepresented the Lord Jehovah and the high commander of heaven, meaning Jesus. He claimed that he was above law and maintained, the, maintained that right and maintained that right was upon his side. He, he, he claimed that he was above law. What is he saying about this law? Think about it. It's imposed and he's above law. So what is he actually saying he wants? He says he, she said freedom. What he wants is though, if you understand the imposed idea, he just wants no rules. If you understand the way the universe actually works, however, what he's saying is, I want liberty without consequence. I want anarchy without consequence. I want to be able to smoke two packs a day without any disease. I want to be able to put a gun to your head and pull the trigger and you not be harmed. I want to be able to cheat on my spouse and have her love me just as much as ever and me not be damaged by that. This is what he says. He wants anarchy without consequence. That's what Satan wants. Can God give him that? No, No. No, because it would require him to deconstruct his universe where there are no more 
if you want to use this word, laws, design parameters, gravity doesn't exist anymore, law of respiration doesn't exist anymore, the very protocols upon which the cosmos is held together would have to be eliminated in order for something like this to happen. You have to do away with all relationships. Yes, have to do away with everything. So, so since the consequence cannot be done away with, since there is accountability, not from some authority that's going to impose it accountability in reality remember the quote we read last week what is it that actually condemns the farmer the un um undisciplined farmer is the harvest if you don't till and plant the harvest is what condemns you there's nothing there to get at the in, in the fall you see it's reality reality condemns and and so but what when when the consequences were not done away with satan then spun it on its axis and said we now have a commander or ruler over us. We have this arbitrary judge. He's, he's, yes, he's in charge of everything. He is God. He can do anything he wants. And if we're going to be punished, then it's because he wants to punish us. And so we, he now presents God as a Roman dictator, and he's this imperial law enforcement officer who, who seeks to, to follow behind us everywhere to f- make, our, make our mistakes known and then punish us for them. That's how he represents them. Do you remember the Desire of Ages 761 quote? In heaven, Satan alleged that the law of God cannot be obeyed. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Do you know that's actually a lie? It's not true. Every sin in the universe will not be punished. In fact, I would suggest to you, regarding human sin anyway, for the righteous, I don't, I don't want to get into the adding up or the more righteous or more wicked, but for the righteous... Those sins are forgiven. They're not punished. They're forgiven. Why? Because sin in the sinner is eliminated and extinguished. Now, the sinner themselves may suffer a consequence, and that can be a punishment, but it's not the ultimate punishment. The ultimate punishment for sin is what? Eternal death. Yes, Russell. Uh, aren't the sins of the wicked also? Doesn't God forgive those sins as well? They just don't. They don't accept it. They don't. Um, they don't complete the reconciling healing process. From God's heart, they're forgiven. Yes, but they but they still reap the punishment of the unremedied sin. Correct. So the the righteous though don't reap or don't experience that punishment right. because it's been forgiven and healed and cleansed and transformed. But by their own choice. yes, by their own choice. But God is not remain. God is not condemning toward them. Yes. So from the relational aspect, they're forgiven, but they still reap the punishment of what unremedied sin does. Yeah. All right. So let's keep going. He claimed that he was above the law and maintained his rights and maintained that right was upon his side, but he had fully made manifest that the principles he advocated were evil and injurious. How are Satan's principles injurious? They lead to self-destruction. Yes. I mean, it's pretty self-evident. If you understand, if you understand reality and how it's built, any deviation from that design causes pain, suffering, and harm to the one who deviates. Causes a loss of liberty and eventually death. Exactly. This is exactly straightforward. But Satan would have us believe that you actually get into legal trouble with God if you deviate, and God is the source of injury and inflicted punishment, and you must fear him and do something to him to assuage his anger and wrath and propitiate him so he won't use his power to hurt you. That's what Satan would have you believe. That's nominal Christianity and Christian theology, and it's a lie. This is the next sentence. 
it has been proved that, and now we're going to quote scripture, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are, are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is the servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. It's been proved. Question, has it been proved to you? If so, somebody share with me how this has been proved to you. What's the quote for that? Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. How has this been proved to you? Yes. It was proved in the life of my dad. He was not a highly educated man, but he lived a life of love. And as you were rereading that, I could listen to every one of those things and see those manifest, not only in his life, but the way people perceived him. And do you see these are natural law consequence, not a sense of imposed rules? If you do this, then God uses his power on how to magically make these things happen in your life. Yes, Russell. Uh, it's been proved to me in that I no longer see Christ and God as, as two separate beings or even antagonistic beings. In character. It's sometimes presented yes. as in character. And uh, I, I'm no longer afraid of God. Yes. Which, you know, 10 years ago I was. Yeah. And does that make a difference in the peace that you have and the, and the freedom in which you walk around with no and the health in which you live your life? Yep. Yeah, and no question. And the willingness to tell others, because the philosophy or concepts that I grew up with were bizarre enough to where I was not eager <laughs> to let... I like the word bizarre. ...bring others down. It didn't fully make sense to me, so I certainly couldn't explain it in a, a convincing or persuasive manner to someone else. But the concepts I've learned in this class... You, you can't not tell them almost. That right, it's almost is such an excellent point. I felt the same way. I did not want to get caught in any kind of exactly. much of spiritual discussion because I was like, oh I my gosh. I can answer the questions for myself, so I know I can answer them for someone else. Yes. Good. Very good. Good. Beautiful. Yes. Back. When I was young, I used to see it as I was born free and I had to do compliance, compliance, compliance with all these rules. When in actuality, I was born a slave. And uh, I was not at liberty. Um, and I, was, I saw God as an imposer. And now I see him as a deliverer. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Keep going. It says, We are exhorted in the inspired records to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. The engrafted word which is in sa- able to save your soul. How does the engrafted word save I'm making you guys think that. You know how I'm going much slower through this? I mean, you think about the meaning of everyone. How does the engrafted word save? What does save mean? Heal. Heal. It means to heal. Sozo in the Greek means heal. If you went to the ER after being bit by a rattlesnake and you said to the doctor, please save me, 
I forgive you. No, you want healing. That's what saving is, to heal, to restore. The word is the truth, which we said earlier destroys lies. When the lies about God are destroyed and you open the heart, then we, this, whole, this whole thing we're reading here, the Holy Spirit comes in. And it's a regenerational transformation. You get new desires, new motives, new attitudes. Love is poured in. You begin to loving God and others more than self. Fear is extinguished. It's healing and transformational. But it starts with the truth destroying lies, winning us to trust. That's what it starts with. A mere casual faith in the word is not enough. It must be received into the heart and grafted into the very character. It is only when this is the case that we have faith which works by love and purifies the soul. Then open wide the door of the heart for the entrance of sacred, solemn truth. The psalmist says, The entrance of thy words give light. It gives understanding unto the simple. It is as we render obedience to the command of God that we have light and peace. What is genuine obedience? Which do you think is more closer to it? Following rules or understanding cooperation? The heart has changed. Yes, an understanding from a heart desire. Thank you. An understanding cooperation from a heart desire. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, as we make the testimonies of God our delight, we have, we have guidance and counsel. We then eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God and find that his words are spirit and life. So w- what does it mean? This is metaphor. What does it mean to partake the blood of Christ? Eternal Remember Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me? To ingest his character into our minds. Yes, to internalize. Because what is the life symbolic of? Excuse me, the blood symbolic. You said the life. Okay, the blood is symbolic of the life. But do you understand in the imperial view, the blood is not symbolic of the life. They have turned it backwards. And they make the blood symbolic of death. It's the death of Christ that pays your penalty. That's what the blood symbolic of. But that's not actually true. Jesus isn't saying, you know, we partake in Christ's death symbolically with what? Baptism is what we partake in his death symbolically of. We die to self and rise again. That's how we partake in the death of Christ symbolically. The symbolism of the communion is the partaking of his life, that we internalize Christ and we become like him in heart, mind, and character. As we walk in the commandments of God, we follow on in the way cast up for the ransomed of the Lord to walk in. The faithful of all ages have walked in this path, and they have shone as lights in the world. In this age, the light transmitted from them has been shining with increased brightness upon the path of those who are walking in darkness. Some have received, remember, we're, we're, this is all still part of that question of the Revelation 14. We're about to get there. <laughs> Some have received the truth, believed and obeyed it. The light of the third angel's message has penetrated into many a darkened mind. What, is the, what do you think the light of the third angel's message is? Somebody said, tell me, in, in one sentence, what is the light of the third angel's message? And I don't expect an answer. That's a stumper for most people. I would tell you that I'm going to read you the next sentence in this article because we're to share the light of the third angel's message. And this is the next, next sentence in the article. So it says, it says, the light of the third angel's message has penetrated into many a darkened mind. The light of wisdom, the goodness, the mercy, and love of God has been shining forth through his holy word. Now, how many would have said that as the light of the third angel's message? 
No, that's not what's presented. We present this ugly, horrible, punishing, wrath-filled God who must be bought off by the blood of his son. That is not the third angel's message. That's why the the church is powerless. That's why the, the Lord hasn't come. That's why we are just asleep and slumbering in the dark. The light of wisdom, goodness, mercy, and love of God has been shining forth in his holy world. We are not we are not in the place where our fathers were. Advanced light is shining upon us in these last days. We cannot be accepted of God. We cannot honor him by rendering the same service, doing the same work that our fathers did. Why not? Why why is that not acceptable to the Lord? Because we're not growing. Think how many parents would be would accept be, would accept as okay a child that doesn't grow. That's okay. I accept that. That's fine. Now, are they mad at the child? But don't they want to see the child grow, develop, expand? Would they be happy for that child to just stay at a certain stage of development and never get a new idea, a new word, a new ability? Would you be happy with that? That's why it's not acceptable. It's not a condemnation. It's, I don't want to accept it because I've designed you for eternal growth and development. Yes, an online caller, listener. Now, online they're asking, they're saying Hebrews 4.12, the divides between the soul and spirit, joint and marrow, it says, uh, ask Tim to explain this from a medical perspective for deeper understanding of how the the word converts. Yeah, that's a metaphor. It's not, you know, it's not actually... It's talking about the deep recess. In the Bible, they talk about the, the soul and the, and the bone. And so David was, was uh, stressed and his bones were, were distressed and so forth. So this is a way of saying the deepest part of my being. And what it's saying is the truth, when understood, will penetrate to the deepest recesses of your character, all the way to your heart. And it will sever out the, the, uh, the motives of fear and selfishness, those old habits of, of, of self-destruction and, and sin and so forth. And it will establish motives of love and peace and grace. And, and you will be transformed in the deepest workings of your being. That's what it's trying to say. It won't be an act. It'll be the essence of who you are. That's exactly right. All right, let's keep going. In order to be accounted guiltless before God, we must be as faithful in our time in following and obeying our light as they were faithful in following and obeying the light that shone upon them. Every soul should place himself where the light will shine upon him. He should treasure every ray that he may be brightened, that he may brighten and bless the souls of others with the heaven-sent radiance. Now, do you understand what's being said here? The, the, the process, what's being described. Is it sufficient for us to take an idea, a truth, a, a, a message that was given over a hundred years ago and proclaim that it is the message for 2014? Un- truth is unfolding. God, remember, God is infinite. We're finite. There's an infinite gap between us and him. Why are we presenting 500-year-old ideas as if they're current? We, this is what it's saying. We should be having truth that is, is special for our generation, our day, that is unfolding and unpacking and expanding. And even in the eternity future, once the new heaven and new earth are here, we will still be unpacking and unfolding truth for all eternity future. Yes? Let's talk about the third angel's message and how that's our message and whatnot. Yes. In the lesson quarterly, the very last paragraph of the lesson quarterly, talked about the, the quote from Mrs. White in the book Evangelism. It talked about the third angel's message and how we should be studying it. And I thought the last sentence was important. So, and I didn't, I've never heard this concept before from our church. We have to study earnestly, prayerfully, in order to understand these grand truths 
and our power to learn and comprehend will be taxed to the utmost. It's not a simple thing. We can't just read it and say God is, is vengeful, vengeful and whatnot. If it taxes us to the utmost, then it involves much more than just a superficial reading of the third angel's message and we've got it, we've got to present it. Let me add, let me, that's a perfect segue into the very next sentence in this article. So that, keep that in mind and hear this ne- next sentence regarding this taxing. This is the next sentence. The darkness of the world is great and individually we shall have light just to the degree to which we improve it. To which we improve it. Now, what does this mean? How does this work? Why is it so? Because only by thinking it out for ourselves, understanding it, comprehending it, studying it, do we develop the neural circuitry necessary to expand our own understanding and grow in the light. And this is true, and this is part of that way God built us. It's true in any endeavor, any endeavor whatsoever. How, how does one grow in musical skill? By practice, by working the songs, by trying various compositions and arrangements. And in doing so, the neural circuitry expands, the and ability and creativity and insight and ideas expand. And so they suddenly become up with new connections, new ways to do the arrangement, new ways to play it that they never thought of before. They're, they're improving the song. You see? Wait, Mozart can't be improved on. <laughs> is that called in your... Yes, it's in the notes. All these are in the notes. This is not an arbitrary edict on God's part. God doesn't choose to make one smart in spiritual things and another ignorant. God's truth is shining freely from heaven. So in Malachi, says the sun of righteousness is rising with healing in his rays. It's shining. Some choose to process it through their own minds, understand it, think about it, and their comprehension expands. Others choose to walk in the darkness and has no impact on them. Yes? By studying the word, we can help improve our character. That's right. And so let's, let's, we're almost done. One sentence, one or two sentences left. It says we are to keep the commandment. Remember we're t- we're, that the text, Revelation fourteen. They usually commit the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. This is, listen to this. We are to keep the commandment. What do you think follows? This is what follows. You guys know. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And it was, I mean, she mentioned earlier about the third angel's message and what it is. Okay, this is what the third angel's message is. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves by disseminating the light of truth that has blessed our souls to those who sit in darkness. Review and Herald, April 25, 1893. That's how we love them. We love them by bringing them to healing truth. So as we move on, uh, the Revelation 14 text jogged my mind to think of the Revelation 12, 17 text, which says, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who obey the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Keeping the commandments means? Loving as he loved. Loving as he loved. And what does it mean to hold to the testimony of Jesus? Revelation 19, Revelation 19, this is uh, the classic interpretive text for this verse, says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we know what that means, right? A bunch of red leather, leather books. Is that what that means? That's not what it means. That's what we've been told it means, but it's not true. What does it actually mean? First off, it's not true because... This passage is not talking about a single individual with the gift of prophecy. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a movement and a group of people who love others like God loves them 
and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, they give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. If you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father's like me. And if we're not presenting Jesus, God like Jesus presented him to be, then this passage does not apply to us, regardless of which day you go to church on. And our church has buried his head in the sand and has rejects this reality, and this is another reason why we can't finish the work. Because they want to make it about which day you go to church on, regardless of which God you represent. As long as you go to church on the right day, you can represent God as wanting to lash out at you with wrath and anger, just like the Jews did. And then you can crucify him and want him down off the cross so you can keep the Sabbath. What do you think of this quote regarding the third angel's message? This is out of Councils to Ministers 138. The health reform is as closely related to the third angel's message as the arm to the body. How close is your arm related to your body? Part of it. But the arm cannot take the place of the body. The proclamation of the third angel's message, the commandments of God, and the testimony of Jesus is the burden of our work. What's the, what, what's the burden of our presenting God as Jesus represented him and loving as Jesus loved? That is the third angel's message. The message is to be proclaimed with a loud cry and it is to go to the whole world. The presentation of health principles must be united with this message but must not in any case be independent of it or in any way take the place of it. There must be a well-balanced symmetrical development of the work in all its parts. Do you understand that our church originally was to build its medical school and its seminary on the same campus, and the students in the seminary were to have work in the medical school, and the medical students were to have training in the seminary. That's how it was designed. Do you know what happened? Separate. We're not to separate, but we did. We separate. Do you know why? Because of the because of power primarily. Kellogg was a physician in our church who was very powerful and very wealthy. And the theologians, for a period of time, were over, shall we say, overshadowed by him. And when he left the church, they took the caution to ensure physicians would never again lead out in our church. And so they removed the seminary to Michigan and left the medical school in California and ensured as much as possible that the seminary students wouldn't get an education in health, health things. And, and you understand why this is so important. Why is the health message to be the right arm? What law do the, do the, do the health message operate upon? Natural. Natural law. Understand, that's why it's the right arm. Because it so clearly acts out and reveals God's design protocols for his universe to which we can immediately then translate into the plan of salvation and is designed for character and heart and mind. But what's happened is we separated the two and now we build these systems of theology built on a list of rules with a dictator who looks like Nero. And that is what has infected Christianity and our own church and that's why we're paralyzed. But think about the health message. It works on natural law. When we give somebody the commandments of health, thou shalt not smoke. And most parents give that to their child. It pretty quickly becomes 
understood what that really means. Doesn't it? Why shall you not smoke? And if you do, what, you know, as a child, the parent in love might step in because the child is too ignorant to understand and put it in, in temporary consequence of some kind. But the reality is, I don't know any child who hasn't grown up to figure out that smoking is actually damaging to them. Even those who still smoke a pack a day, they know it. Healthcare team is never, that I know of, represented as being against the patient always against the disease. We are wrathful against disease and infection. We want to destroy disease and infection as fast as we can. But we're never against the patient. Do you see how God is wrathful against sin, but never the sinner? He wants to destroy sin, not the sinner. Ever. And ever, that's right. And the non-compliant patient who refuses all the entreaties of the healthcare team will die, but not at the hands of the healthcare team. This is why the, the health message should be the right arm. It makes it so very clear God's role in all this. And do you see how we have been abused by the theological systems of modern Christianity? There's, an, there's a quote in here I'm going to skip and, and move on because I think you guys want to hear some other things in the lesson. Um, Sunday's lesson... The lesson asks us to read the account of Genesis when God, when God instructs Adam not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and then warns that he will die if he does. And then the lesson asks this question. What test was given to Adam and Eve? <laughs> i got a typo in my notes. I, pro- I apologize. It's all typo. Yeah, so when you see it, I, I don't know if I'll get it corrected or not, but there's a typo in here. It says Adam and even. So <laughs> Adam, Adam got even, right? <laughs> Okay. So that Adam and Eve, why, uh, why would uh, such a test be needed for perfect beings, that's asking? What was this test? Do you understand what the test was and what its purpose was? Oh, okay, it was a test of trust, exactly right. It was a test of trust. That's what it was, a test of willingness to think, to reason, to choose, and why was that necessary? Was it necessary because God is going, well, I made these guys, and I don't know which way they're going to go. I've got to put this out here so I can find out which way they're going to go. Is that why this test was there? So God could find something out. It was not. He knew then from the beginning. He knew. It was there for the same reason that Christ was tested. It's for character development. What did God want for them? When he put them in Eden, what did he want for them? Yes. Freedom. Freedom? Yes. Perfect character. Perfect character. It turned, did he want his children to suffer and die? Absolutely not. Or did he want them to be eternally healthy, happy, free? Sure, and secure. So what would be necessary for Adam and Eve to be eternally secure beyond any possibility of choosing to deviate from God's design? What would be necessary for that to happen? Self-control. Self-control. Choices, development of character, all saying the same things. It would require them to actually think through the issues for themselves and to choose the truth and reject the lies. This could only be accomplished by their actually having an opportunity to make the choice. Thus, the tree in the garden was put there for their character, as Russell said, their character development, their advancement, their solidification in holiness. Here's a quote from a, a book called Conflict and Courage one of the founders of our church, and how at least we used to teach these things. 
It was page 13. Our first parents, though created innocent and holy, were not placed beyond the possibility of wrongdoing. They were to enjoy communion with God and with holy angels, but before they could be rendered eternally secure, their loyalty must be tested. At the very beginning of man's existence, a check was placed upon the desire for self-indulgence, the fatal passion that lay at the foundation of Satan's fall. The tree of knowledge, which stood near the tree of life in the midst of the garden, was to be a test of the obedience, faith, and love of our first parents. While permitted to eat freely of every other tree, they were forbidden to taste this on this on pain of death. They were also to be exposed to the temptation of Satan. But if they endured the trial, they would finally be placed beyond his power. Think, think what would place them beyond his power. To enjoy perpetual favor with God. God must have, excuse me, God might have created man without the power to transgress his law. He might have withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden fruit. But in that case, man would have been, would have been not a free moral agent, but a mere automation. A robot, in other words. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would not have been voluntary, but forced. There could have been no development of character. Very straightforward. He, think about the, just think about what God has gifted you with. He could have made us all robots. He's actually given you sentience and freedom to make choices. And your choices will determine the outcomes of your life. And the thing that would have put them beyond that yes. was the same thing that put the angels That's right. in heaven beyond Satan's access. What put the angels in heaven beyond Satan's access? They saw it so clearly, understood the issue so permanently. They were so settled into that reality that nothing Satan could ever do to them had any grip or power over them anymore. Their minds were settled. Their characters were firm. And what is it that uh, led them into this uh, distrust? What was Satan's power to, to lead them to distrust? Lies. It was lies. Lies believe. Break the circle of love and trust. Remember that whole cascade. Monday's lesson. The lesson reviews the condition of the world from Noah to Abraham, uh, how the uh, wicked people, uh, were, how wicked the people were before the flood, and how quickly after the flood they degenerated. In Genesis six, it talks about the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. This is actually talking about the converted people marrying the unconverted people. What's the problem with that? Well, I'm going to give you some quotations again from over a hundred years ago, and you tell me this is out of. Uh, One's out of Ministry of Health, the other's out of Mind, Character, Personality. Um, Ministry of Health, page 371, and Mind, Character, Personality, page 139. First one. Tell me what you think. Are these true or not true? What the parents are, that to a great extent the children will be. The physical conditions of the parents, their dispositions and appetites, their mental and moral tendencies, are to a greater or lesser degree reproduced in the children. Here's the next one. The nobler the aims, the higher the mental and spiritual endowments, and the better developed the physical powers of the parents, the better will be the life equipment they give their children. In cultivating that which is best in themselves, the parents are exerting an influence to mold society and to uplift future generations. Through the indulgence of appetite and passion, the energies are wasted and millions are ruined for this world and the world to come. Parents should remember that their children must encounter these temptations. Even before the birth of the child, the preparation should begin that will enable it to fight successfully the battle against evil. 
Especially does this responsibility rest upon the mother. She, by whose lifeblood the child is nourished and its physical frame built up, imparts to it also mental and spiritual influences that tend to the shaping of mind and character. In past generations, if mothers had informed themselves in regard to the laws of their being, they would have understood that their constitutional strength, as well as the tone of their morals and their mental faculties, would in a great measure be represented in their offspring. Do you think this is just a bunch of hype, a bunch of guilt-ridden, fear-inducing hyperbole to cold Christian mothers, or is this science? This is how God designed things. In Eden, he said, let us make man in our image and let them be fruitful and multiply, making beings in their image. Did God actually create us with the ability to change ourselves? And then based on what we do with ourselves, we will pass instructions along in our in the DNA to our kids that will change them to be like us. Well, let me give you some science. Because science is fascinating these days. I've got the references in here. I won't, write, I won't cite all the references that are in the notes, um, but they're here. Grandfathers who grew up in famine conditions conferred greater risk of mortality on grandsons, while grandmothers who grew up in famine conditions conferred greater risk of mortality on granddaughters. Uh, X, Y, and and I won't go into the reasons why, I'm just going to tell you the data. Men who smoke before the age of 11 confer greater mortality risk on their sons than men who don't smoke before the age of 11. They alter the gene expressions, what's happening. Um, What's happening, we have gene sequences. And then we have instructions that sit above the genes telling the genes how to express themselves. The sequencing does not change. This is not genetic mutation. This is epigenetic modification that alters how the genes are turned on and turned off. And we have kids, we pass along those instructions as well. Maternal stress during pregnancy alters the developing brain such that the child will be less capable of calming their fear circuitry. Uh, Thus, they're more anxious and fear-prone than they would have been otherwise if mother had not been highly stressed during pregnancy. Experiences in adolescence alter DNA expression, which can pass down to the offspring study done on on genetically defective mice who had a specific gene damage that caused memory problems. And then they took these these cloned identical mice, put them into two groups, and one group in their adolescence was given an enriched environment, lots of toys and things to climb on and play on. And then they were tested, not surprising, the group that had the enriched environment had better memory than the group who didn't. But then they let them have offspring. And the offspring of the kids whose parents had the enriched environment uh, were not allowed to have an enriched environment during their environment growing up, but yet they still had better memory. And when they looked at the DNA, the gene defect that caused the bad memory, because of the enriched environment in adolescence, there was an acetyl group attached to the histone in that region that shut it off, and that bad gene was turned off, and so they had normal memory because of a good environment during adolescence, altered their genes and passed on an advantage to the kids. Recent study of over 4,000 mothers and their children followed over 18 years found that the, if the mother had a negative, pessimistic, and depressogenic thought processes during pregnancy, in other words, she thought negatively during pregnancy, then her child was much more likely to have negative thinking patterns 18 years later. Mm-hmm. When I read up there, her mental and moral tendencies are passed along to her child. The association remained after accounting for maternal and offspring depression and other factors. The the mother's thought processes during pregnancy accounted for 21% of the association between maternal and child depression. 21% of the depression was attributed to her thought processes. That's profound, guys. That's profound. Now, the good news is it's only 21%. You've got 79% of other things influencing, so there's a lot of good things that can happen. But think about it. 
Recent research in post-traumatic stress individuals found that cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a therapy that designs one to activate their prefrontal cortex, think, reason through evidences, a truth-based therapy, you know the truth and the truth will set you free, that people who engaged in in, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy resulted in positive gene expression changes in the hippocampus of the brain. Hippocampus is the part of the brain where all new learning takes place. When you're trying to remember something, you walk out of here today, it's being stored in your hippocampus. As you sleep tonight, it will be transferred from your hippocampus to other places in your cortex for long-term retrieval. But all new learning goes through your hippocampus. These PTSD patients, PTSD individuals, have shrunken hippocampuses and orbital cortexes. They're small. The reason they're small is because under the high stress, there's a gene that responds in the hippocampus to the elevated stress hormones. When you're stressed, your stress hormones rise. They hit a gene, uh, they hit a receptor in your hippocampus, which then signals your hypothalamus to say, hey, hold up, we got enough stress hormones, don't send anymore. But PTSD individuals have a gene expression change where they shuts off that receptor and they lose the, the uh, feedback loop and so they get increasing amounts of stress hormones circulating which cause actual damage and they lose volume. They get shrinkage in the hippocampus and the orbital cortex. What cognitive behavioral therapy showed was that the therapy turned this gene back on. They re-expressed the... Um, the uh, glucocorticoid receptor, and therefore they got the feedback loop and it reduced the amount of glucocorticoids circulating and they got uh, neuronal regrowth in these areas and their brain volume increased. Based on the truth being applied, neurobiologic change happening, change in thought processes. Yes, fascinating stuff. Yes. So how do students have less stress in their life when they're having high-stress courses? (laughs) By uh, actually living in harmony with design protocol. Seriously, you must get your sleep. I can't tell you how many students cut their sleep. And you cut your sleep, your body will be highly stressed. You won't get the normal restorative. Your brain will not function as well. You get overwhelmed as easily. You get higher glucocorticoids and stuff. So you have to sleep. Physical exercise. You exercise regularly physically. You get better um, neurotrophins produced. You get anxiolytics from your own brain, endorphins and caffelins and other things that are calming and help keep you calm that are, re- that are released. Um, you uh, eat a healthy diet. F- inflammatory foods, uh, fast foods, junk foods that a lot of college students eat, uh, increased risk of depression. Depression 40% because they're highly inflammatory and they actually interfere with neural signaling and make it harder to concentrate and focus. Um, So you live in harmony with the design and ultimately then you have that spiritual relationship with God, spend time with him each day and remember your responsibilities. The student is responsible for fulfilling their duties and then trusting God with the outcome. I'm not responsible for how well I do on this test. I'm responsible for preparing well for this test. Those are two different things. Because I know, and we've all had a particular structure somewhere, who it didn't matter. They, that, I, I've known of teachers who never gave higher than a 70 ever in their class. It didn't matter how well people prepared. That Nobody got higher than a 70. Okay? But I'm not responsible for that. I'm responsible for preparing the best of my ability and trusting God with the outcome. So there's a whole variety of things there we can do. That's a great question. All right. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how beautiful you are, how you've made us, the truth about uh, your kingdom, Uh, send your Holy Spirit that we can comprehend the truth, that we will be convinced of the truth and make the decision to open our hearts and that the Spirit will come and take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, that our thoughts will be brought into captivity with with yours, that our heart will be, be like yours, that we will live a life of the commandment of love, that we will love others and we will hold to the testimony of Jesus 
that God is exactly like Jesus revealed him to be. Enable us to go to our own church, our own families, our own friends, our own community, and help free them, so many, well-meaning, good people, captive, enslaved into a distorted worldview that keeps them in fear and insecurity. We thank you so much for your goodness. Enable us this week. Bless our, our friends around this world that are sharing this message in their community that they will be effective and soon the world will be lighted and you will return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.